Well, when I was in college, I became really familiar with a website called Rate My Professor. How many of you have heard of Rate My Professor before? All right, good, good number of you. So the, the whole idea behind the site is that students can go on and leave reviews and ratings about their, their prior college professors. They rate them based on their quality and on their difficulty, and they can also leave some, some comments about the professors. So here, here's how a college student would use this. Let's say they are signing up for English One on Monday, Wednesday with Mr. Jones at, at USF. Well, before signing up for the class, they're gonna go and rate my professor and look up Mr. Jones. And they're gonna see, okay, what, what have people said about them? How have they been rated? They're gonna look at their, their quality rating, their difficulty rating. They're gonna read some reviews about them before they decide whether or not they're gonna sign up for this professor and for this class. And if you're in here and you have a college student and you're wondering, I wonder if my college student uses this, this, this website, I can guarantee you that they do. And what's really funny is college professors are very aware of the website as well. They'll go on there, they'll read comments, and some professors will even respond to some of the comments that students have left. But when I was a, when I was a freshman in college, uh, I, I was introduced to Rate My Professor. And this is how I kind of used the, the website. When I was signing up for a class, I would go and look up a, a professor, but the only review, the only rating I would pay attention to was their quality or their, their difficulty rating. I didn't care about the quality rating. I wanted to know how easy is this professor. And when I would find a professor that seemed like they were gonna be pretty easy, I started searching through the comments for a few key phrases. Phrases like this, doesn't take attendance. I mean, why go to class if I don't have to? If I can find a professor that doesn't make me go to class, that sounds great. Phrases like this, open notes test. I mean, why study when I can bring my notes with me? I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. Phrases like no final exam. I mean, who needs to stress of, of exam week? I don't, I don't wanna deal with that. So I would find these professors, they'd be really easy, and I would sign up for them. And let me tell you, my freshman year of college was a joke. It was a breeze. I got A's in all my classes and I'm thinking, man, this is so much easier than high school. Like this is what I've been missing my whole life. Thank you, rate my professor, for making college so easy. But here's what I realized after a couple semesters of doing this. I hadn't learned anything. I couldn't tell you anything about my history class my humanities class, my, my, my literature class, I hadn't learned a thing. These professors were easy, but they weren't actually any good. So going into my sophomore year, I started having to sign up for classes that, that applied to my major. I was an accounting major, and I started taking kind of the, the entry-level accounting classes, and I figured, you know what, I should probably start to learn some of this material. So I, I changed my approach a bit. When I would go and look up the professor, rather than looking at their difficulty rating, I started paying attention to their quality rating. I wanted to know, like, is this professor actually a good teacher? And I would read comments like this, you know, their tests are really hard, but I learned a lot in the class. Or, you know, the, the, the material, it's really challenging, but they did a really good job explaining it. And I started signing up for these kind of professors, for these kinds of classes. And, and let me tell you, the, the comments are true. Like these classes were a lot more difficult. I actually had to study for, for my tests. I had to put in work outside of class. They were a lot more difficult. But I was actually learning something. 
I was actually being challenged. I was actually growing and enjoying college. These professors were so much better than the ones that I had had my, my freshman year. And here's what I realized. Better doesn't mean easier. Better doesn't mean easier. In fact, better often means more difficult and more challenging. You see, my best college professors were typically the most challenging because they forced me to grow, they forced me to learn. You see, I fully believe with, with all my heart that following Jesus will make your life better. I, I, I truly believe that. I believe that if you will follow Jesus, it will make you a better spouse. It will make you a better parent. It will make you a better friend. That if you will follow Jesus, it will give your life more purpose and meaning. It will provide you with, with peace and with joy. But here's the mistake that I think we make in, in 21st century American Christianity. We assume that better means easier. And the, the version of Christianity that's often taught and, and promoted is this, that if you will follow Jesus, you will have a problem and pain-free life. You're not gonna have any struggles, you're not gonna have a cha any challenges, it will be a problem and pain-free life. Like if you'll follow Jesus, you're gonna have the perfect marriage. To be smooth sailing, no bumps, no issues, no challenges, you're gonna have the perfect marriage. That if you'll follow Jesus, your kids are gonna turn out great. No challenges, no issues with them, they're, they're, they're gonna be great. That if you follow Jesus, you're gonna be comfortable financially. Like you're, you're never gonna have to worry about that. If you follow Jesus, you're not gonna have any health complications or, or health concerns. If you will just follow Jesus, it will make your life easier. And maybe this is the version of Christianity that you were kind of introduced to as a kid or as an adult. Maybe it's the version that you're still even trying to, to hold on to a bit. But here's the problem with this version. It doesn't match reality. But even if you follow Jesus, you still have problems and pain in life. You still have struggles and hardships. It doesn't lead to a problem in pain-free life. And my guess is this has probably been your experience. For those of you who say, hey, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, despite trusting in Jesus, you have still dealt with pain and tragedy in your life. Maybe it's been a cancer diagnosis for yourself or for somebody in your family. Maybe it's been the, the tragic loss of, of a loved one. Maybe it's been a divorce that you just never imagined yourself walking through. Maybe it's a, a broken relationship with, with, with one of your kids. Your life hasn't been easy. Your life has had struggles, it's had challenges, and, and maybe this has caused you to begin to, to doubt Jesus. Maybe you've even become kind of frustrated with him because you feel like following him hasn't really met your expectations. You almost feel a little bit disappointed and let down because Jesus hasn't made your life easier how you expected him to. And now you're not even sure if following Jesus is even making your life better. So here, here's the question that I want us to try to answer this morning in just the next few minutes is this. Can following Jesus make your life better even if it doesn't make it easier? Can following Jesus make your life better even if it makes it more difficult and more challenging? And to answer that question this morning, we're gonna look at a passage written by a guy named Peter. 
You see, Peter was one of Jesus's original disciples, one of his most devoted followers. He spent three years doing life with Jesus, seeing Jesus's ministry firsthand. He heard him teach, he saw the miracles, and then one day, Peter saw Jesus crucified on a cross. And Peter thought it was game over at this point. But three days later, Jesus came back to life and it changed everything for Peter. And after the resurrection, Peter became kind of like the, the point leader in the early church in Jerusalem. But Peter, he, he never believed in or promoted this American version of Christianity. This version that following Jesus is gonna make your life easier. In fact, Peter witnessed some of his closest friends be put to death, be murdered because of their faith in Jesus. And later on in life, Peter would be martyred for his faith in Jesus. He faced challenges, he faced difficulty. But despite all of this, Peter still believed that following Jesus, it makes life better. And Peter, he wrote this letter that we refer to as, as First Peter. And he wrote it to some of the earliest Christians, Christians that were scattered all throughout Asia Minor. And these Christians, they were, they were facing extreme hardship. They were going through some extreme challenges. They were facing religious and political persecution because of their belief in Jesus. And Peter, he, he writes them this letter. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. I want everyone to say living hope. Let's try again. Let, let's wake up a little, bit, a little bit. Everybody say living hope. Thank you. That's going to be something we're really focusing on this morning. He says a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance, he says, it's kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So here in the, in the opening of this letter, Peter begins to explain what this life looks like as a Jesus follower, this better life that we have in Jesus and, and through Jesus. And he says that because of God's great mercy that he has shown towards us, because of God's great mercy, if we have trusted in him, he says, we have experienced a new birth. And this new birth, what it is, it's this, this new nature we've been given. It's a new way of life. And he says that we have been born into what he calls a living hope, a living hope. You know, hope is kind of a theme all throughout the book of 1 Peter. But you see, when Peter talks about hope, he doesn't talk about it the way that we often refer to hope. When we talk about hope, it's almost like it's, like it's wishful thinking. Like we hope things will turn out all right. We hope that, that, that things will be okay. There's always a bit of uncertainty associated with hope. It's never guaranteed when, when we talk about it. And I mean, just think about it. Like what in life is truly guaranteed? Like what in life can we be absolutely certain about? I mean, there are certainly things that I am pretty certain and pretty confident about. Like if I leave work for, for lunch and I go to Chick-fil-A, I am pretty confident that there's gonna be a massive line out to the street. 
Like whether it's 10 a.m., 2 p.m., 9 p.m., when I go to Chick-fil-A to get my number three spicy chicken sandwich, large Arnold Palmer, buffalo sauce and ranch sauce, that's the best combo. When I go to get that, no matter what time of the day, I'm pretty confident I'm gonna be waiting in line for quite a while. I'm pretty confident that when I sit down to watch football on Thanksgiving, the Cowboys and the Lions are gonna lose. Like, I'm just pretty confident that that's gonna happen. I mean, it's kind of getting to the point where I'm starting to think, like, it's irresponsible for me to not put money on this game because I am so sure that they're gonna lose. I'm pretty confident that if I show up to see Gary Payne preach, there's gonna be props. Like, it's almost certain. It's almost guaranteed. There are things in life that we're, we're pretty certain about. There are things in life that we're pretty confident about, but there really aren't many guarantees in life. There really aren't many things that we're just absolutely certain of. I mean, think about it. We, we can't be absolutely certain about our financial situation. We can be wise with our money, we can save, we can invest, we can have, have, have kind of the, the, the safety net. But we can't be absolutely certain about what our financial situation will be for the rest of our life. We can't be absolutely certain about our health. We can take care of ourselves, we can go to regular doctor's appointments and checkups, but we can't be certain about what's gonna happen with our health. We can't be certain about our relationships. We can love the people in our life, we can invest in those relationships, but we're not certain that those relationships will always be around, that that person will always be in our life. Things are always changing. These things are outside of our control, but this living hope that Peter's talking about, it's not like that. Because this hope that he's talking about, it's not based on our circumstances. This hope isn't, isn't tied to things that are outside of our control or that are always changing. He says that this hope, this living hope, it's tied to the resurrection. It's tied to this historical event that happened 2,000 years ago where Jesus conquered sin and conquered death. And he says that this living hope, because it's tied to the resurrection, it's secure, it's guaranteed, it's unchanging. He says we have been born as followers of Jesus into this living hope but he says we've also been born into this inheritance, into this future reward, this future prize. Now, inheritance is a concept that, that most of us are familiar with. And I'm sure you've seen a movie where you know, the family will gather around for, for the reading of the will, for, for the dad or for the grandfather, and they're all wondering, how much am I gonna get? Like, what, what part of the inheritance am I, am I gonna get? And of course, in the movie, they find out that the guy's worth nothing. They just leave him behind massive debts. Or that they, they leave the inheritance to, to some unexpected friend or, or family member and they, they felt like the inheritance was theirs and they, and they lost it. But Peter, he says that this inheritance that we have, it's been promised. He says it, it can't perish, it can't spoil, it can't fade because it has been secured for us in heaven. He says that through Jesus, we've been born into this living hope, into this inheritance. These things are guaranteed. These things are unchanging. He says we, we have this better life in Jesus. We have this better life through Jesus. But then Peter, he, he kind of pivots and listen to what he says in, in verse six. He says, in all of this, you greatly rejoice. You celebrate about these things. Though now for a little while, 
you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And Peter here, what he's saying is this, is that this better life, it doesn't mean an easier life. Because for a little while, during our time here on earth, he says that we're going to experience grief. We're gonna experience pain. We're gonna experience disappointment. We're gonna face all kinds of different hardships and trials. And Peter, he understood this firsthand. He experienced this firsthand. But despite that, Peter did not think all these trials and hardships were in vain. He didn't think they were all for nothing. Look at what he says next in verse seven. He says, these have come so that, because there's a purpose, he says, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says that these trials that we all walk through, that we all experience in life, that they prove, they reveal the genuineness, the authenticity of our faith. And he uses this analogy of gold being, being refined. You see, what, what, what would happen is blacksmiths, they would take gold and they would put it into a fire and it would be melted down into a liquid. And when the gold would be, be, become a liquid, the impurities and the blemishes in the gold, they would rise to the surface. And the blacksmith, they would remove the impurities, they would remove the blemishes from the gold. And as the gold would begin to cool down and to solidify, what you were left with was a pure, more genuine version of gold. And as a result, it was so much more valuable. He says in the same way, hardships, they purify our faith. Like when you and I, when we walk through difficult seasons of life, the blind spots and the shortcomings in our faith, they begin to surface. They begin to be revealed to us, those areas where we're lacking faith, those areas where we need to grow, those areas where we need to, to mature. And he says that if we will just allow these trials to, to, to do their purpose, they can begin to, to remove the impurities, the blemishes from our faith. And as we persevere, as we allow these trials to, to work in us and through us, we're left with a pure version of faith a faith that is more genuine, more authentic, and, and more valuable. And he says that, that when this happens, when we persevere, when our faith is refined and becomes more pure, he says that it results in praise, glory, and honor. Praise, glory, and honor, and this is twofold. For one, we receive praise and honor. The Bible talks about that when we endure, when we persevere through trials and hardships, we receive praise and honor. We have this eternal prize and reward that, that we obtain one day. But ultimately, Jesus, he receives praise, glory, and honor when we persevere. Because when people watch our life, when we walk through trials and through hardships and they see, man, his faith, her faith, it's real. It's genuine. They don't just believe when things are easy. They believe at all times. They are committed at all times. When people see this, it points people to Jesus. Jesus receives this praise, this glory, and this honor. But when does this happen? Like when do we get to see the reward for the trials that we endure? When do we get to, to see the results that Peter's talking about here? I mean, sometimes in life we see the results immediately. 
Like we're facing a, a trial in life and we're persevering and we're enduring and we start to see God moving and working. God begins to, to redeem that pain almost immediately. And we get to celebrate in it. It's very evident, it's very, very tangible in our lives. There's been times in my life where, where I'm walking through a difficult circumstance and really step by step along the way, I see how God is using it. I see how God's moving, I see how God's redeeming it. Man, but there's times in life where we've walked through a difficult season and we don't see these results for months. There's times where we don't see these results for, for years. And quite frankly, there's times where we just, we never see it. And this is when things are most difficult because when we don't see any purpose behind the, the pain and the hardships that we're facing, it starts to feel like it's all just a waste. And we start to wonder like, why? Like God, why would you allow this? What, what, what is the purpose behind this? How are you using this? What, 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 what's the purpose behind this? Are we ever gonna see the results from this? But notice what Peter says. He says this praise, this glory, this honor, it will be realized when Jesus is revealed. Peter's saying, look, it's not about right now. It's not about the immediate. He's pointing us to a future hope, to this inheritance that one day we will receive. Look, I, I know it's so hard for us to, to think that way because we want to see immediate results. Like if we're gonna face difficulty in life, we wanna see immediate results of how God is going to use it. We want immediate answers. We wanna know why. We wanna find those things out right now, but Peter, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get us to shift our perspective. He's saying these trials, these hardships, they're just for a little while. They're not eternal. They're not gonna last forever. He's saying, I want you to start seeing the bigger picture. I want you to start thinking about eternity. You have something greater. You have something better in the future. And then he finishes by saying this in verse eight and nine. He says, though you have not seen him, and what's so interesting here is, is this, is that these people like, like Peter who are writing these letters, they are people that actually saw Jesus. They saw him live, they saw him rise from the dead, and now we're getting our first generation of Christians who never actually got to see Jesus in person. And they're truly believing in Jesus based on faith, based on this message that they've heard. He says, look, you're, you're not like me, you haven't seen him yet you still love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. He says, for you are receiving the end result. Not the immediate result, not the right now, not the short term, you're receiving the end result of your faith. He says, the salvation of your souls. But I, I don't know what, what you're facing this morning. And I don't know what, what some of you are walking through, but I know for some of you, easy is the last word that you would use to describe things. Like life is hard for you right now. It has been a difficult season and you're not sure when or if things are going to change. And you're maybe questioning God 
and you're wondering, when am I gonna see the results? When am I gonna see this, this praise and this glory and this honor that you're talking about? You know, just in the past couple of weeks, there have been several families that are associated with our church that have walked through unimaginable situations. The kind of situations where you look at it and you just wonder why? Like why God, why would you allow this? It's, it's, not, it's not right, it's not supposed to be this way, it's not easy. But you see, I believe that Jesus makes life better even when it's not easier. And here's why, because hope can coexist with hardships. The hope that we have in Jesus is just as real, regardless of the circumstances going on in our life. And while our hardships and our trials are temporary, the hope that we have is eternal. Because our hope is not based on our circumstances. Our hope is tied to the living hope. Our hope is tied to Jesus. You see, trials, they reveal where we have placed our hope. And if you've placed your hope in something that is outside of your control or something that's not certain or something that's not guaranteed or something that changes, then at some point in your life, you are going to be left disappointed and frustrated. Your hope needs to be tied to, it needs to be anchored to something that is secure, to something that's guaranteed, to something that is unchanging, and that can only be found in Jesus. So this morning as we wrap up, I just wanna leave you with this question. Something for you to consider is this. Where have you placed your hope?